Good morning. I was going to say, and I still will say, thank you to all of you who have been involved in the tent business. Over the last couple of years, the school department bought some tents to put up because of COVID so that classes could be outside, and, but they're not winter friendly, and so every fall they got to come down, and every spring they got to go back up, and, and volunteers from here have done that repeatedly, and if you've done one of those once or more, thank you, and thank you as a church for, for being involved in that. And the last project was spreading out four trailer truck loads of wood chips on the playgrounds. So that happened last month, and there are some people who worked really hard. The first one was about the hottest day in August, and, um, and they worked it, but so for, from me, because I'm involved in those things, from the school department more generally, thank you um, for contributing to the, to the good of the community simply by doing that. Tomorrow, as I'm sure you're aware, we celebrate Labor Day. And for many of us, it's a holiday from work. Now, you may or may not know Labor Day was conceived in the years after the Civil War as a, as a means to honor the workers who by their labor did so much to build the, the prosperity and the strength of our country. Otherwise, the business tycoons would have gotten all the credit. You know, that was an, that was an era when the labor movement was, was really strong, and in that era, a lot of the work rules and other things that we now benefit from were proposed and enacted. You know, things even like the eight-hour workday. So the holiday may honor the workers, us, but we seem to have something as a society, something of a love-hate relationship with work, don't we? So we love the job and hate the hours. Or we love the benefits and hate the office politics. I'm throwing things around here. We'll ignore those. We, we love the salary and we hate the boss or the corporate management. Or we, we love what we make and we hate the rigmarole required to do so. You get the idea, right? At the same time, as a society, we are constantly told that the weekend is really where it's at, right? Thank God for Friday. Leisure is good. You deserve a break today. And work is bad, boring, and a blight on my life, you know, a blight on my happiness. Now, it is grudgingly admitted by most that work is necessary, but only to pay for leisure activities, vacation, plus, you know, necessities like food, clothing, and Netflix. <laughs> and yet, 
we know, I mean, in our gut, we know that leisure is not the be-all and end-all that it is made out to be. We all want to be and to do something significant. We want to feel like our lives are worth something. And we know that that's going to take some work. So how do we think about work? How do we view it as something that, that most of us have to do for a major part of our lives? Is it a blessing or a curse? Is it the gift of a good God or a necessary evil or punishment? So this morning I invite you to look with me at some short passages. We'll be looking at four total in Genesis and Ephesians as we think about work. You see, the Bible is, among other things, a standard by which we can evaluate ideas. And when we need to know where something started, Genesis is a good place to start. Now, by the way, if you're retired, and I know there's at least a couple of you here who are, don't check out. But think about where God is putting you for big parts of your day in this period of life. And if you're a student, not yet really part of the workforce, school is really your work, whether you like it or not. <laughs> that's, that's where God's got you for too many hours a day, you may think. All right. So what, is, what does the Bible say about work? Well, obviously we can't cover all of it, but there are three things that I would like us to consider this morning. The first one is this, work is part of God's good created order. Work is part of God's good created order. The first chapter of Genesis tells us of God's work in creating the universe and more specifically the earth that we live on with all of its flora and fauna. And he goes through the whole list of all the days. And then we, we come to, to chapter 2 and verse 2, which says, On the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now God's work was creating at that point in time, in that week just described. And then beginning in verse 4, we get some detail about the creation of people, the first man and woman, who are really only touched on in summary form in chapter 1. So chapter 2, God gives us the rest of the story, so to speak, the details that we want to know. So God formed the man of dust, breathed life into him. The man became a living creature, a living soul. And then next, God planted a garden, complete with trees and rivers. It must have been something like a combination of your vegetable garden, your flower garden, and Central Park. All right? And so then now we come to the verse that we want, chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man 
and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Here's Adam in the middle of the most lush and beautiful and pristine spot that ever was on the face of the earth, and God tells him to work. That's what I mean when I say work is part of God's good created order. Adam gets to till the soil. I'm sure he had dirt under his fingernails. And listen to the bird song. He gets to prune the trees. He gets to watch the sunrise. No matter how you look at it, he, he worked, but he also saw and heard and experienced the glory of God's creation all around him. He is to work the garden. That means he's, his job is to till, to prune, to plant, to harvest, to do all of those things that we think of as gardening or more broadly perhaps agriculture. He is also to keep it. He's to keep it. So that would have to do with protection, guarding the place, preserving it, even treasuring it. Right? The, garden, the Garden of Eden was something special, and God wanted Adam to realize that and for him to have an attitude of preservation in the sense of making all of it that it can be. So the work of this first commission which God has given to people included both production, for God, Adam had to till the soil to raise the food he needed to eat, and preservation, because he was there as a steward of what God had made. His not, he was not to exploit, but to use it well. That was his work. There was also other work that was given to Adam in, in the next verses, um, work with a very specific purpose. He was commanded to name the animals, right? So he's the first taxonomist who gets to, to give animals their names. Don't you wish you knew what those original names were? It could be fun to know what Adam thought of the elephant or the aardvark. Yeah. Work it and keep it. Do good work, Adam. That's part of my instruction for you, God says. Work is part of what God made people to do. And that's us, too. Because we want to do something worthwhile, something that is significant with our lives, we struggle with what our culture tells us sometimes. See, our culture, which is a superstar mentality, tells us that celebrity and fame is the way to be significant. And as a result, we who are just ordinary folks feel insignificant. 
like we don't count for much. Adam reminds us that our work, no matter how ordinary, is actually something that is part of God's commission. It is something that God has given us as people to do. And therefore, it is significant. It is satisfying as we provide a service, as we create beauty, as we make or sell things that are useful to people, and all of the other different kinds of tasks that are involved in our work from day to day. So, do good work. For you are doing work as God has created us to do. However, that Edenic situation that Adam was put in did not last. So the second reality that we can see from Genesis with regard to work is that work became toil as a consequence of sin. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, we read these verses. To Adam he said, and this is after Adam and Eve had sinned, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now, before I deal with the, the second part of that, gentlemen, this is not an excuse to pay no attention to your wife. Adam and Eve had disobeyed God. God had put Adam in the garden and he had given him one prohibition. Don't eat that tree, from that tree. What did Adam and Eve do? They ate from that tree. And so God's point here is not that the, he's, he's not saying never listen to your wife. He is saying if I tell you don't, don't listen to her when she says do. Right? Now, the reverse is also the case. So, ladies, if your husband is telling you something God says no, then you listen to God, not, not man or woman. Right? When God put Adam in that garden, he expected him to, to obey, to do what he had put him there to do. Now, it, it was a garden, remember. We call it paradise. They had all they needed. It was well watered. It was fertile. A more perfect place to grow crops and flowers and everything else has never been. But because they disobeyed, the consequence 
was that pleasure became toil. Sweat and pain were added to Adam's experience. In addition, there were thorns and thistles, weeds, thwarting his efforts to grow things by competing with the plants that he desired to grow. And it doesn't say so, but I suspect that this is when black flies became a problem. <laughs> now, we usually think of, of change in human behavior, like theft and exalt for, assault, for example, as the consequence of sin. And that is very real and a terrible consequence of sin. And there, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But the ground is also cursed. Paul writes in Romans that all creation groans, subjected to futility by sin, and longs for the restoration to come. The persistence of weeds or unpredictable rainfall is not your imagination. All of creation groans under the burden of sin. Now, in our work experience, we find frustration and boredom and fatigue and discouragement. And that's before we bring other people into the picture. They add gossip, opposition, Cutthroat competition, slander, sabotage. Demand, we have demanding supervisors, hiring freezes, labor strikes, labor sh shortages, wage freezes, all kinds of things that make our work, our labor, anything but pleasant. And so, blame it all on Adam. He started this mess. But actually, Adam was the first person to blame it on somebody else. Did you know that? <laughs> God showed up in the garden and said, Adam, where are you? What did you do? Did you eat this? She told me to do it. <laughs> Let's not forget that we also perpetuate the problems that we like to blame on other people. Not one of us is immune to the, from the desire to make ourselves look good at the expense of others or from cutting corners or feathering our own nest. We are not always complimentary when we talk of others. We don't always tell the whole truth. Sometimes we insist on having our own way. See, we have inherited both the cursed ground and the propensity to sin from Adam. We just can't help ourselves. And that pattern of disobedience, sin, is all around us. Not one of us is immune from it. Every single one of us knows what it's like. We start pretty little. Did you ever have to teach a two-year-old to say no? 
we may think that we're doing better. And then somebody says something or a machine breaks or a well goes dry and we lash out. Or if we're, if we're very self-controlled, we just seethe. <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Those words come from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and they remind us of the third reality about work. God's transforming power gives purpose to our legitimate work. Now, we're going to look at a couple specific examples, but I want to, to catch you up on where Paul has been in the letter to the Ephesians, which is just lush with God's grace. If the Garden of Eden was a place that is, was lush and bountiful, Ephesians a letter which is lush and, and shows us the bounty of God's grace. See, Paul writes of a great transformation that God effects in people. God has accomplished in His mercy several things. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you four as examples. The dead become alive. Those far from God are brought near to Him. Workaholics become recipients of grace and losers become worthwhile. Now I think all of us can identify with one or more of those things. We can recognize, we can see that in our own lives. As one who is disobedient to God, just like Adam, I deserve punishment. But by God's grace in Christ Jesus, I instead receive through faith His blessing. I don't deserve that. I get adoption instead of banishment. I get life, real life, instead of death. God's grace is recreating those who choose Jesus after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's not the physical creation, it's the recreation of our character, our spirits that God is working on. And by so doing, God gives us value and purpose in our lives. And so now we come to a list of examples in chapter 4. And, and let's look at one of them because it's, it's got an extra element in it. Verse 28 of Ephesians chapter 4. Um, it's fairly simple, but it says this. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What has changed here? It's not just the activity, the occupation. It's also the motivation. So the one who did steal is no longer to steal, but to do honest work, work with his own hands, in order to have something to satisfy himself? No. In order to have something to provide benefit to somebody else. Now, it could be that a thief might say, you know, this business is getting a little risky. I'm going to give it up. Right? Now, we might, we might call that thief reformed. But what God is doing in people when he changes our desires and our motivations is transformation. He's changing our hearts. He's changing the reason we get up and go to work in the morning. He's changing the way we think about what we do. See, God transforms the selfish one, thief or otherwise, into a benefactor, into one who is thinking about somebody else's needs and how I, who may have something, however little, can give for the benefit of another. God transforms one person at a time into a, I don't know, you could say a better version of that person, his, benef his version of that person. And behind that kind of transformation, the transformation and motivation, there's another transformation. And we can see it this way. How many of you have to deal with unkind or antagonistic coworkers or unreasonable bosses or rude customers? Yeah? Have you, all, have you done that? All right. Perhaps you have wished that they, will change, they might change their attitude. What does God say? What does Ephesians tell us? Chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Now, in the ancient world, in, in the Roman world in particular, a great deal, a high percentage of the trades were actually done by people who were bondservants through one means or another. Sometimes that was a voluntary sign-up in order to get out of debt. Sometimes it was people who were captured in a war and who were made bondservants. But a huge percentage of the population in the major cities was actually slave, bondservants. And that's where a great deal of the trades 
were done, skilled trades. And God is saying here, as Paul gives instruction, that we should change. I mean, it's not, it's not the grumpy boss who's expected to change, it's us. That may not seem fair, but that's the instruction God gives us. See, we should work as if we are serving the Lord, because in fact, we are, right? And this is a change in perspective, and it, that is the real transformation that God does. God is the big boss. He is the ultimate judge, and because he is, we can keep going with good grace, in spite of grumpy bosses and everything else. Now, remember, if it depends on me, that doesn't happen. It's only by the grace of God, through the transformation that he is doing in me, that that good takes place. So work. We've all had to do it. We all will have to do it. And let's face it, work can hold many challenges. Now, one challenge for many is feeling like we're the only one trying to live out Jesus' instructions and biblical values. We feel alone. And that's one reason why this time, right here, right now, is so important. We need this to be reminded of the fact that God is still God. By seeing God, we are able to keep everything else in perspective. Being here as a church allows us to be encouraged and renewed and refreshed. Now, Travis said last week, see, I was paying attention. He said last week that Summit Church is not a Sunday morning event. Now, there are multiple implications that I take away from that. Right? One implication is that there are other places to learn and grow besides right here, right now. Small groups, for example. I think that was Travis's primary point. But there's more to it. All right? Another implication is that Sunday morning is not merely an event we plan. Sunday morning is a time when we're here to meet with God. And when God shows up, sometimes the unexpected happens. A third implication is this. When we leave here, do we cease being the church? No. I would suggest we are still the church, but we are scattered across the county at home and at work. That's why many of you feel alone when you're at work. And when we feel alone, we can be more easily discouraged. So, 
I invite you to think about this reality. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are learning a different set of values from those held by the people who live and work around you. And you carry with you to your job, to school, to the club, to the dentist's office, to the grocery store, wherever you go, you carry with you the almighty and eternal God because his spirit is in you. If you're there, he's there. So, this time Tuesday, what will be happening where you work? If you're a student, that's school. If you're retired, well, you figure it out. You got more experience than I do. Okay. Will the fruit of the Spirit be on display? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Or will it be the deeds of the flesh? Your job might be menial, even to the point of boredom. Or it might be so pressure-packed you feel like it will never end. But the point is not the kind of job. The real point is, what is the character of the man or woman, the boy or girl who's doing that job? You're there, in that place, in that position, with those people, by the grace of God. Your job provides some income, provides other benefits, it provides a measure of satisfaction as you do good work. You are also there for the grace of God. For by your presence, grace is delivered to that place and to those people. Now, we don't work in Eden. Yes, work can be really hard. And people can be nasty. But God is still God. His grace is sufficient. It is always sufficient for my weakness. And because of His grace, our work is worthwhile. Now, before I pray, I want to ask two questions. First question, how many of you will head to work Tuesday? Put your hand up. Go ahead. All right. Quite a few people. All right. Second question, how many people would like somebody praying for them when they go to work Tuesday? All right. That's for us to do church. Pray for one another. Let's start right now. Father, we are grateful that you have given us work to do. There are, there are things we love doing. 
You've put in us desires to, to do this or to do that, to, to make, to create, to help others, to accomplish good things. And yet we do struggle with the difficulties. We struggle with the attitudes of other people. We struggle with our attitudes. And so I ask simply that you help us remember Tuesday and every day that your spirit is with us, that you are present in our workplaces. You are present when we walk the street. You are present when we have to go talk to the unruly neighbor. In every place we go, you are there. And so by your grace, give us words to say and the strength to live with the fruit of the Spirit foremost in our minds. May your work be our work for the glory of God. Amen.